Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network. I am your host, Joel Cherney. My guest today is Mark Glancy, author of the book, Cary Grant, The Making of a Hollywood Legend, published in 2020 by Oxford University Press. Part of the Oxford Cultural Biographies series, Mark presents a chronological review of a golden age of Hollywood star who was underrated for his skills as an actor, as well as his intelligence as someone who controlled many aspects of his career. Welcome, Mark Glancy. Hi, Mark. How are you today? Hello, Joel. I'm fine. So we are on opposite ends of the Atlantic Ocean, but we found time to get together and discuss your new book, Cary Grant, The Making of a Hollywood Legend, which is part of the Oxford University Press's Cultural Biographies series. I recently interviewed Stephen Smith about his Max Steiner book, and that's part of that same series, so I'm glad to speak to you about another great entry. Now, one of the major points about Grant and other celebrities, I guess we'll use that word, um, is that there have been many biographies, but they tend to be gossipy and based on often negative, but without going real deeply into the uh, individual's life. But your book does a great job of presenting Cary Grant more completely. So, Thank you. That, that's exactly what I, what I wanted to do, is um, not to write an expose and not to write a hagiography, but to write a sort of critical biography that was very thorough. I think this is sort of like with any history, and it doesn't even have to be film history. When we are too close to a subject, time-wise, it often leads to assumptions or information that's put out that's based on what supposition. And I think the longer you get away from something, the easier it is to present something more well-rounded. Yes, and and I think um, also we have the sources now. In this case, with Cary Grant, we have the sources now to do that. So biographies that were written soon after he died in in 1986 are are very different from those written today when we have so many digital resources as well as archival resources. Right, and we'll talk about those in detail. I always like talking about sources that an author uses since um, I think it's helpful to uh, the audience to get a better sense because many of them are are writers themselves or historians and they like to know what kind of sources other people are using. But before we get into the book more, I wanted to get some details about your background. You're a film historian. You teach at the Queen Mary University of London. I suspect the pandemic has adjusted your way of life as well, as we actually talked about briefly before <laughs> we started. Uh, and you've written a number of books. So this is your first full-length biography, um, even though you've written articles, including articles about Cary Grant. So what led you down your path to film study? Um, what led down my path to, to film studies generally? Right. Where did we get to... Uh, uh, where where did you decide that you wanted to become <laughs> a film historian? <laughs> okay, I well I'm originally American, uh, and I'm from New Orleans uh, in Louisiana, and I came to Britain as a junior year abroad student, as an exchange student basically, and I was only meant to be here for six months. Uh, but I discovered film history at the University of Lancaster, where I was a junior year abroad student, a wonderful teacher there named uh, Jeffrey Richards. Um, and um, I, I just fell in love with it from, from the beginning and couldn't get enough of it. And so I stayed on and finished my degree at Lancaster. Uh, and that led on to doing a master's at the University of East Anglia and then a PhD there. Uh, and I, ju- I just carried on. I never intended to stay in Britain the rest of my life, but it seems like I, I have and I will. Well, that happens both ways, so it's good to know that uh, uh, you found your, your path, so to speak. I'm sure it yes, was accidental, I, but you still found it. 
And I think film history was a way of understanding British culture, which I wasn't particularly steeped in when I originally came. And so the longer I stayed, the more interested I got in British films uh, and understanding something about, not just about British history, but about British identity and British popular culture through, through studying films. And in fact, uh, your other two of, or at least a couple of your other books uh, were related to the difference, you know, the the summarization or how we combine Hollywood and Britain. And so uh, it seems like you fell right into the most obvious uh, way to discuss this uh, in your way, because you had obviously ties to both ends. That's right. And uh, I think Cary Grant um, continues that that theme in in that he was so transatlantic. Uh, when I was writing the book, um, I would often talk to people about it, talk to people who who didn't who knew him but not anything about him, and they they were often surprised either to find that he was British or to find that he was American. Um, Americans seemed to have assumed that he was he was American, and and Brits seemed to assume that he was British. Um, and but I, I think there's also an element of everyone wants to claim him, um, but he is a very transatlantic character. Well, I also think he came up with a an accent that sort of transcends both, and it's the kind of thing where when you listen to him speak or in recordings and such, um, it can be. Uh, somewhat surprising that it's probably not a big surprise you're not sure where he's from that's right and there's a little bit of everything in there um you can still hear a bit of his background from in bristol in the west of england uh you can hear um he spent some of his teenage years in in brixton in south london and i think you can hear a little bit of that uh and then of course he went to new york and he was on broadway and he had he had voice training uh and so i think that's where he's um He's Americanized as, as much as he ever as much as he ever was. So when did Cary Grant first appear on your personal radar? Obviously, um, by the time you were watching film, he had stopped making them. Obviously, I mean, uh, I was born in '56. You're younger than me, but he pretty much he stopped his film. When what what year exactly did he retire? I'm thinking I want to say '62, but maybe I'm wrong with that. He made his last film in in 1966, a film 66. called Walk, Don't Don't Run. Okay. Uh, and um, yes, yeah, so he he had retired by the time I was watching films. Um, um, I my first job was working in a cinema, working in a movie theater, I should say, in New Orleans. Uh, and um, I we showed what it was called repertory then. Uh, mm-hmm. It was it was before the age of, of video and DVD, where we showed showed old movies, uh, and all I did was pop popcorn. Uh, but once the audience went in to watch the film, I could watch it too, and uh, I just fell in love with all these all these old films, um, and um, didn't really think about studying them at that point. Um, but um, you know, I saw a lot of old classic films, uh, and um, um, enjoyed enjoyed his films a lot, uh, alongside many others. Uh, but then if we fast forward a few years, I was living in Bristol myself. Um, when I was writing my PhD, I was living in Bristol. And one of my friends there pointed out to me, um, did you know that's where Cary Grant went to school? Um, and it had never occurred to me where Cary Grant was from, or that, let alone that he was from Bristol, uh, and uh, that he was from this neighborhood that I was, that I was living in, uh, which was, you know, kind of a backstreet, rather humdrum neighborhood. And that really started me thinking about, over decades, thinking about how did this kid named Archie Leach go from here, the backstreets of Bristol, uh, to being just the most worldly, sophisticated, glamorous movie star imaginable. Um, and uh, that, that, that led me to read a lot of the biographies um, of him, and there, there are many. Um, but I was never completely satisfied. There seemed to be huge gaps in the story. Uh, and so that's what ultimately led me to, to write my own book. And uh, that's one of the things that I mentioned, <clears throat> excuse me, up, <clears throat> up front, and we'll talk a little bit more on is that, uh, and I think I made the, you know, celebrity biographies do, especially current ones, then tend to be at the, written at the time the person is still around or just recently died. 
they're gossipy and uh, don't always fill in all the blanks. Well, partly because the information's just not there. Now, you also have other, you've had before the book, other uh, activities related to Cary Grant. Talk about your role in the Cary Grant documentary that came out in 2017. Well, while I was, while I was writing the book, um, I was contacted by the, the filmmakers who, who were planning this, planning this project completely independent of me. Um, and we were very simpatico. Uh, I met with the director, um, uh, Mark Cadell a number of times and the producer, Nick Ware a number of times. Um, and we all seemed to be on the same wavelength, uh, about him and about, um, what this, what this documentary could do. Uh, and so it was a, it was a marvelous opportunity for me in that, it's, well, it was great to be, to be involved in filmmaking, which I'd never done before, but also they, they opened all sorts of doors for me, uh, including, um, uh, they had access to Cary Grant's home movies. He, he took home movies, uh, all his life, uh, beginning in the 1930s, which I think was quite early for that. Uh, and, um, so it was just—it was amazing to be able to watch these and to see the world through through his eyes or his lens or whatever, uh, and to see what he pointed his camera at and and you know what fascinated him, uh, and there were hours and hours and hours of them. So I I love that. Um, they also introduced me to his widow, uh, Barbara Barbara Janes, uh, and um, she invited me to um, come and have lunch with her in the house that he that he'd lived in since 1946. Uh, he, he bought a house in 1946, quite a humble house by the standards of Beverly Hills. Very, he was a very tasteful man. Uh, and um, she still lived there. Uh, and so I could, um, I could see this house that I'd read so much about uh, and get a sense of you know, his, his surroundings uh, and where, where he enjoyed living so much. So let's go ahead and talk a little bit more about uh, your lucky finding, you know, of, of uh, being able to interview and talk with uh, his, his last wife, because that's where you found about, got major review of a treasure trove of primary source material. Uh, I know you used a lot of things, but talk about what you've, you were able to access with, with Cary Grant's own personal archive. Well, she had already she had already left his right. papers to the Margaret Herrick Library in Beverly Hills. So I had actually already been going through those uh, before we started making the film and and before I before I met her. Um, so his his papers um, were um, what he collected throughout his entire life, relating to his own personal life and his family as well as his professional life. Um, and he was a very careful archivist, I think, it's, I think it's fair to say. He collected a lot, uh, and he kept it in great order, um, and um, he had a, uh, a fireproof vault built into this home at, in Beverly Hills um, in, in order to, to keep this stuff and to make sure it wasn't destroyed in a, in a fire or a mudslide or whatever it might be. Um, so that I, I had been going through that um, as as often as I could get to California. You know, every vacation I, I had, I would go and, and look through these through these papers. Um, and it's a slow process because they don't allow photocopying, mm -hmm. um, and, and you have to be in there with a with a pencil, <laughs> not even a pen. Uh, and um, so it was a slow process, but uh, I I was absolutely fascinated by them and and also astounded that other biographers, previous biographers, hadn't really made use of them. Um, they, they had been available since, um, the, I think, um, 1992, something like, a few years after his death, anyway. They'd been available for a long time um, and uh, were seeming not quite untouched, but certainly largely unexplored. I wonder how much, I mean, I haven't really looked around to see what other biographies there are, but it's conceivable that they weren't as historically grounded as yours is, obviously, and therefore those kind of archives are treasure troves. I know I've used that phrase already, but I think we all, as anybody who studies history in any form, those are the kind of archives you you just can't 
get over when you find them. Yes. And it made me realize that so many Hollywood books, particularly books about Hollywood history, are written through interviews uh, and through the writer using their contacts to interview people who knew the person uh, who then tells stories and anecdotes about their about their life. Um, and so I think most of the biographies were written in that way. And they might have they might have looked at the Cary Grant papers and said, Oh my God, there's too much here. <laughs> but I had a, I had a very different um, idea in mind and I have a very different approach in that I, you know, as, as I think you're indicating you do, I, I love an archive and I love a collection of papers and, and going through it page by page. Uh, and um, so I was, I was much more open to that than I was to interviewing people. Um, because I, the, well, there aren't that many people left who, who knew him uh, when he was when he was making films, and that's my primary interest. Um, and uh, I think memory is unreliable. I think people tend to remember what what they read in the last book they read about him. Yeah, unfortunately, it's one of those things where you hear, especially in current events, where or something current, so much is based on somebody's ideas or somebody's thoughts and as you point out and you can see it in all kinds of study historical study about how mistakes are made because somebody remembers something a certain way and or worse as you say that's what they somehow get it in their head is true because it's all it's what they last remembered so uh, an, an archive even though in this case obviously it was his archive so you still have to look at it it's his point of view so but at least you've got the material that uh, will help you get more about from him or helped you with him. What kind of other materials were you able to access that helped you with your, with your research? Um, well, this is it. When you have a, when you have an archive like that, a set of personal papers, uh, you have to be aware of how, of how carefully <laughs> curated they are, uh, and that some things will have, will have been left out of them, uh, taken out of them. In fact, uh, so it's, it, it, I had to go on and do much, much, much further research. So one of the things I was quite keen to do was go to the various film industry archives, most of them around Los Angeles and, uh, the, the studio archives of, of RKO, of, of Paramount, of MGM, all the studios he worked for and look at the making of his films through their, um, production files through the archival collections of production files that all of these studios have left behind. So I wanted to get some idea of what his creative role was in the making of his films um, and what, what it was like to be on set with him. Um, and uh, that he made, he made 72 films. So that was quite an arduous uh, task in itself, uh, going through the, uh, the making of these, of these films. Um, he left... In his papers, he left a huge, huge collection of publicity. So there are 24 um, large scrapbooks of, of clippings uh, from the earliest part of his career, before he was even making films. Um, and they go right through his film career and into his retirement. And so, of course, I needed to check those. I need to go through those first, but then I need to check them against... Um, other clippings files, so they're clipping files in the New York Library, at the Herrick Library itself, and then through databases, um, you know, uh, databases of, of newspapers like newspapers.com, uh, which is which is such an amazing resource for historians now. Yes, I've used it myself. <laughs> the yes, great thing I is, think, is it gets advertised have. for genealogy, but it's got so much value for on any history in any history study where you want to. F uh, as far as the kind of newspapers that are available there. Yes, and for, for a career this of this length, um, it was almost too much. Uh, it, it was almost too much to have, you know, hundreds and hundreds of newspapers over decades uh, reporting on him. Um, it, it becomes a question of, of how you select and edit and use with care rather than trying to be comprehensive. In fact, I was going to ask you that at what, I mean, did you reach a point with your research where you finally said, I've got to stop researching and start writing? Yes, um, I did. 
but then when I was writing, um, having those resources uh, at my fingertips, um, those kinds of um, digital resources at my fingertips was uh, helpful, but also probably too tempting to go back and look at things again and remember uh, that this this was the way it was co- this was the way he was covered in a fan magazine in 1940 or the way the films were reviewed in 1963 that sort of thing. So, let's go ahead now and talk a little bit more more get into the book itself. Obviously, you arrange the book chronologically, which for somebody like this, you know, for an actor in particular or a film person, it's a logical way to go. Um, he was born Archibald Archie Leach, and in 1904. And as you pointed out, he he was born and raised or the first part of his life in Bristol, in England. What kind of a place was Bristol at the time? What kind of a of a city or, or area? Well, Bristol is about a hundred miles from London, so it's a provincial city in England, but it's um, it's a uh, uh, a fairly affluent city and um, a prosperous city uh, and it was a it's a port city so it's a gateway to, it was a gateway to the new world uh, and um, a, fair, a fairly busy port um, so I think one of the things that that shaped him most of all from Bristol was was just seeing the amount of um, uh, the amount of ships coming in and out of the harbor uh, and thinking of thinking about where they were going and where he might go later in his career, because he did he did have a tremendous wanderlust his his whole life. He was very restless as a boy, um, and um, he once he left Bristol, he really never stopped traveling. You hear stories sometimes about people who live in areas where things you know near a port or even near a railway station or railroad by railroad tracks where people, younger people will sit there and say, where do those lead to? And it sounds like the wanderlust he had, um, you know, it helped that he was literally right there uh, where everything went. Yes. And and I think the first job he uh, applied for was to be a cabin boy uh, on one of those, on one of those ships that he, he was that eager uh, to get to get out to sea, uh, and uh, it turned out he was too young uh, that he would have needed his his uh, father's permission, and I think he he couldn't get it. But um, when he's an older man uh, and he's got his he's got his camera in his hand, he's got his home movie camera in his hand. He so often points the camera uh, at ships, um, ships and planes. It's just astonishing how often he films them uh, coming into port, going out of port, landing, taking off. Uh, from the air, in some cases, he is he is fascinated with not just travel, but the movement of travel. So one of the things that you talk about in detail, and unfortunately, it's probably uh, it's the terrible aspect of his younger life was the situation between his mother and father. Um, what happened? You know, obviously, you detail, you know you talk about it in, in a great amount, but. What were the situ- What was the situation that ended up happening between his parents? Well, they had a very unhappy marriage, um, and um, the father was reasonably prosperous by working class standards. He he worked in a factory as a tailor's presser. Uh, so when when the clothes came off the factory line, he he pressed them, um, and uh, he he made a, a decent living at that. Uh, but it, it wasn't enough uh, to keep the family happy, it seems, and it wasn't enough particularly uh, for his wife who had um, aspirations to, to a better life. She, she seems to have wanted to get ahead in life and, and wasn't happy with being um, um, hard-pressed for money. Uh, and they apparently fought a lot about about money. That's what he remembers from his childhood, his parents having these terrible, long arguments, uh, often about money. Um, but she also seems to have, have had some sort of depression or some sort of breakdown uh, that no one really knows why it happened. Um, the most likely thing seems to have been that um, he had an, uh, Cary Grant had an older brother 
who who died as a baby. Cary Grant never knew him, and in fact didn't find out about this this uh, older brother until he was in his fifties. Um, Cary Grant found out about it when he was in his fifties. Um, but she she seems to have gone into a, a long depression after the baby died, um, and to have to have had bouts of of mental ill health. Um, and ultimately, when, when Cary Grant was 11 years old, his father took his mother to the local asylum and had her committed. So she went into what was then called the Bristol Lunatic Asylum uh, when Cary Grant was 11 years old. Um, and um, as far as he was concerned, as far as Cary, or I should, should be calling him Archie, as far as young Archie was concerned, his mother simply disappeared mm -hmm. because mental health was such a sensitive issue then and, and there was so much shame attached to it that no one told him what had happened to his mother. I think they thought it was better that way, that he wouldn't have the, the shame of knowing that his mother was in the asylum. And so he simply came home from school one day when he was 11 and she wasn't there. And no one told, no one would tell him what had happened until a few weeks later, uh, they got tired of his, he was an only child, but there were some cousins around who got tired of his questions, these older cousins, uh, and they told him that she was dead, that his mother had died. And it's not clear whether he believed them or not. There was no, there was no funeral, of course, there was no, there was no grave to visit, uh, but you know, he spent the next couple of decades wondering, wondering, had she abandoned him? Um, had, she, had she really died? Uh, if she had abandoned him, what had he done wrong to, to make her abandon him? Uh, so he grew up with this tumult of, of feelings about his, his mother and this uncertainty about his mother that um, is just astonishing when you, when you think about the effect that that would have on uh, an 11-year-old boy. Um, and he didn't find out that she was in the asylum uh, for another 20 years. It was only when his father was dying that his father told him, uh, your mother is in, in the um, Bristol Asylum. And what a, what a shocker that would have been. Did he actually ever see his mother again? Yes. He, he, um, when, when his father told him that, he seems to have gone on a bender, uh, and it could be because he disappeared for six weeks. He was in Britain on a kind of publicity tour, uh, and he had all sorts of dates lined up of things he was meant to do, and he didn't show up for them. Uh, and the next, the next record we have of, of where he is after he went to Bristol and saw his father uh, was he's, he's sitting up in a hospital bed, and they're saying, oh, he, he, the publicists are saying, he, he needed to have a sudden operation. Um, but he, he later confided to, um, one of his, uh, one of his girlfriends that he had gone on a bender, that he hadn't, he hadn't been able to process the information, uh, and he went into the hospital to dry out. Uh, so, um, he, he dried out and he then went to see her, uh, and had this very awkward meeting with his mother, who'd been in the asylum for 20 years, had not seen him since he was 11 years old, and of course didn't recognize him, because she'd last seen him when he was an 11-year-old boy, and now he's a 30-year-old man who says his name is Cary Grant, and he's a millionaire and a movie star and lives in California. Well, you can imagine it would have been quite bizarre for both of them. And... Um... So yeah, I can imagine, especially like you say, I can imagine how that would set somebody off onto, uh, as we say, a bender, uh, to be suddenly told that somebody you thought was dead or was told was dead is suddenly not only is alive, but is someplace you can actually go to see them. It's not that they, you know, and, and the whole thing. Now, was, was there indications that she actually belonged there? Well, this is the very, very difficult thing um, to, to figure out. One of, one of the things that... Uh, um, Cary Grant's widow did did give us uh, the when when I was making the film gave the gave us the filmmakers the right to see her medical papers from from the asylum. 
So we saw her admissions record uh, and we saw her release records uh, and we get a handle on what had happened. Um, and I, I think there was some genuine mental health issue with her. But what's, what's disturbing about what happened to her is that it's written very clearly in her admissions note notes that she is not uh, she poses no harm to herself and she poses no harm to others uh, and so why on earth would you put someone in the asylum for decades if they pose no harm to themselves or to others uh, it, it simply seems that all of the notes suggest that the couple weren't getting along uh, she and she and um, Cary Grant's father were not getting along uh, and that they were having these arguments, including arguments about him seeing other women uh, and that she got very upset during these arguments. Um, and uh, so she went she went into the asylum um, and when she was released 20 years later, um, it, it simply says, well, she's recovered now. Mm. And there's no there's no indication of any, anything anything else apart from the fact that by this time her husband had died mm -hmm. and and Cary Grant had um, Cary Grant was now responsible for her he was her next of kin and he was willing to facilitate her release so it seems as though as long as as long as her husband was alive her release was not going to be facilitated uh, but he he um, arranged for her to be released and he uh, paid for her. He, he sent her money for the rest of her life. And they very slowly rebuilt their relationship. And one of the, one of the really interesting things in the papers, and I, I don't think they were meant to be there, uh, uh, was this box of letters, um, from, from Cary Grant's mother to Cary Grant, uh, and vice versa. In some cases, he kept copies of, of what he sent to her in return. And so um, you could, I could read their exchanges beginning in 1936 and going up you know, for the next 30 years, the letters they wrote back and forth to one another. Um, yeah, that's one of the things you see in archives back from this period where letter writing was so important is that the person who was writing the letter often made sure to use carbon copies or copies so that uh, they had a record of what they sent to someone else. I know I've interviewed other authors who have used letter, you know, a large amount of archives with letters, and that seemed to have been a pretty normal practice for for letter writers. Yes, and and I suppose for um, uh, self conscious letter writers, that right. you would, you would want to have this record of of what you'd said. I mean, his. His replies um, are, were often done by um, cablegram or telegram, uh, and so he would he would have a record of that as a kind of receipt. Um, so he did he did not begin doing the carbon copies until the '60s when he was when he was typing everything, and he seemingly kept a carbon copy of everything, everything he ever wrote. Uh, but um, so mo most of what I see in the uh, most of what I saw in the archive is her handwritten letters. Um, and his his replies by cablegram. So obviously he became a performer of some sort pretty quickly in life. Um, you talk a lot about uh, some of the initial uh, work he did as a performer. And then he gets into acting or performance reasonably young for somebody who... Uh, See, you know, from the looks of it, did not have any particular background that would lead to that. Uh, when did he decide it was time to move on from Bristol? Well, once his mother uh, had disappeared when, when he was 11, uh, he, he had a very unhappy home life. Um, his father was often not home. His father left him in the care of a grandmother who was an alcoholic. Uh, and didn't didn't look after him at all. Um, uh, you know, it was, it was a very bad time for him for for three years. Uh, and he was a scholarship boy at a local secondary school. So a lot of a lot of boys of 
of his age and class would have left school at the age of 12 and gone gone to work. Um, but he was able to carry on until he was 14. Um, but he he was increasingly unable to focus on school, unable, I think, unable to get up in the morning um, and, uh, you know, just didn't have the kind of disciplined home life that was conducive to being a good, a good scholarship pupil. Uh, and he started work at this time for pocket money. He started working in the local music hall theaters, uh, the Empire first and then the Hippodrome in, in Bristol. And that's where he fell in love with show business and found found this alternative family uh, that was you know so much more loving and accepting and and, uh, and gay in the old sense of the word gay you know they had fun it was um, a lighthearted atmosphere uh, and um, he he just felt at home in the theater I think uh, and so after a couple of years of that of working as a backstage runner in these theaters um, he auditioned for. Um, one of the one of the acts and um, ran away from home to join uh, this acrobatic troupe. Um, so he, he wasn't the, he wasn't the old speaking. the old uh, cliche of running away to join the circus. He actually did it. I know he is the original ran away from home to join the circus boy. I mean, it wasn't really the circus. Right. Um, they weren't they weren't acrobats in the sense of swinging uh, swinging from ropes. They they did gymnastic feats and what was called exotic dances uh and they walked on stilts uh it was when you read the accounts of the the act it it sounds like nothing we we have today uh but um he he joined them as a very athletic sort of act you know he had to get into really good shape to do this a lot of training went into this physical training um and he became very good at it uh he became one of the stars of the troupe but he he stayed with them for years and years and years. I mean, you know, for um, about seven years, he's um, he's on stage, uh, you know, performing on stilts, uh, performing as a gymnast, um, doing these exotic dances. That's that's really his showbiz career and training. So, how did he end up getting into film? Obviously, he was born in 1904, so. He was born with filmmaking, uh, but he became, it got really into it once, I don't know if it had anything to do with it, but it, as sound started, uh, you know, so he was, he became known or became an actor right as sound took, uh, started to take over. What led to him becoming uh, uh, an actor? Well, all of those years um, as an acrobat uh, did not give him any voice training. You know, he'd never spoken a line of dialogue. And so what the really crucial event for him was when he was cast, uh, I think, on the basis of his looks uh, in a vaudeville, touring vaudeville vignette, you know, a little playlet that that was uh, on stage along with other other vaudeville acts um, as part of a program. And he toured the United States for over a year in this one little playlet called The Woman Pays. Uh, It was about 20 minutes long. Um, And he had a relatively minor part in it, but it at least gave him some experience with dialogue, with speaking on stage. And uh, that that led into, um, uh, that led got him an audition um, with a Broadway producer. Um, and just gradually he got bigger and bigger Broadway roles um, in musicals, of all things. Uh, so he, he before he was uh, in Hollywood, he was, I would say, co-starring rather than starring in Broadway musicals. And the problem there was everyone had, by this time, you know, when he was in his 20s, people were admiring how handsome he was problem was he had a terrible singing voice and so the reviews his scrapbook is filled with page after page reviews from these musicals and they quite they quite often say you know Archie Leach is very handsome unfortunately he can't sing that hasn't stopped some people (laughs) (laughs) no it it didn't it didn't stop him uh and uh so he he was on Broadway for about 
four years in the late 20s and early 30s, and then work on Broadway began to suffer because of the Wall Street crash mm -hmm. uh, and the, um, as, you know, the depression worsened. Broadway was really closing down. And he just, he took a risk by going to Hollywood. Uh, he drove across country from, from New York to, to Los Angeles and just, you know, ha he had a letter of introduction to a couple of, uh, a couple of talent scouts and he just tried his luck at it. Um, and, um, was, you know, was taken on by Paramount. And I think you can see that they, that he didn't have any show business standing at this time in that their first their first instruction to him was change your name mm -hmm. <laughs> no one no one wants to go see a film with a guy called Archie Leach in it uh, so they weren't you know they weren't trying to um, they weren't hiring someone who who already had a reputation uh, and they came up with this name for him with with his help uh, and set him on this track of being um, a matinee idol so for many many years in Hollywood his his first five years in Hollywood. He's really just this sort of handsome guy in a tuxedo who tells the leading lady he loves her. Mm. That's, you know, the, the, first, the first 25 films he makes, they're pretty repetitive and pretty dull. Well, it, like you say, uh, at that point, he was just another leading man or another character actor or leading man. I'm not sure how you would even describe him at that point. He was there as the love interest or, or whatever, but he didn't stand out other than his looks. I would, from the sound of it. That's right. And, um, it was one of, one of the things I was most looking forward to when I came to write this. I, I, I watched the films in order because I wanted to see how his career developed and, and how his talent developed, his screen talent. Uh, but one of the, it was one of the things I was really looking forward to was seeing all of these Cary Grant films I hadn't seen before. Um, and through Hook and by Crook, I managed to get hold of them all and watch them in order. And it was, it was you know, quite sobering to see not only how mediocre the films were, but also that he wasn't very good on screen for a long time. He, it took him a long time to learn how to act for the camera and to be at ease on the camera. So the very first films you see, he, you can you can actually see that he's he's got his hands in his pockets, uh, and he's he's clutching his fists so tightly you can see the knuckles through his uh, trouser trouser pockets. Uh, he he just he's very stiff and uncomfortable on screen initially. And so I think of those five years, those first five years at, at Paramount as being a kind of long apprenticeship where he learns. He's, he's very studious and he learns, takes notes, watches himself, goes and watches the rushes every evening after filming and learns what works on screen and what doesn't and how, how he comes across well, which, which side is his best side, how to hold his chin when he speaks, so that he doesn't have a double chin, how to use his voice. Um, and you can you can see steady progress as he uh, as he makes film after film after film at Paramount. It sounds like he was his own self-director. Was that I mean, from your study of film history, I'm going to assume that that's probably somewhat unusual. Yes, um, I think that's true. Um, he clearly got something from Joseph von Sternberg, with whom he made. Um, Blonde Venus, you know the Marlena Dietrich mm -hmm. film. That was that was probably the first really important director he worked with, and he's he's a bit better in that film. Um, and he worked with George Cukor in 1935 uh, on Sylvia Scarlet, uh, and again, much better. But it's not really until he left Paramount, uh, and he could he could pretty much choose which projects he wanted to do once his career got going anyway he could choose uh who he, who he was going to work with and he chose so well because he chose leo mccary uh he chose howard hawks he chose george stevens he chose alfred hitchcock and and it's really watching the films in order you really get a sense of each one of these directors informing uh his performance but also his image uh, and and what what it was possible for for Cary Grant to do on screen, um, so he there's no no doubt that he learned technique himself, 
that through studying his own performances and watching the rushes and all that, he learned technique. But I think there's there's something else, something more than that that he gets from working with some very very important directors. I know that uh, we have this basic stereotype of the of the golden age actor or actress who pretty much is controlled by somebody else, doesn't have much say-so over anything, and traded around from one studio to another. But I still have seen more than once you find these standout actors and directors and writers who have who found a way to have more control over their careers. And Cary Grant definitely was one of those people from, from your descriptions or from many of the projects he worked on that he had a lot more... Um, control over what was going to what he was going to do and and even how that material was brought to the screen what kind of how did he get that kind of control I mean, obviously you've mentioned that that he was in a position where he could choose but that he actually found people who were willing to listen to him mm. he got that control uh, by taking a huge risk which was leaving paramount they renewed his contract as many times as they could the studio renewed his contract uh, as many times as they could, which was five years. And at the end of five years, he had the right to say, no, I'm, I'm out of here. Uh, and, he and he did. And that was very, very unusual at the time um, for stars to leave the safety of a studio contract. Um, because the, the studio protected you, it gave you publicity, it paid you a fortune. Uh, and the, the idea was that the studio also nurtured your career. And I think what, what he saw was uh, his career was not being nurtured, that they, they thought of him as a, Paramount thought of him as a second string Gary Cooper. Uh, and that he was always going to be, he was only going to uh, be able to make films that Gary Cooper had rejected. Uh, so very, very boldly, he left Paramount and simply said, you know, I am a, I am now a freelance star. Um, I'm, I'm up for work. <laughs> Whoever wants to offer it for me, offer it to me. And um, other, other stars had done this. Uh, there were other big stars in Hollywood, like Ronald Coleman, for example, who were freelance, who were independent stars. What was different about him is that no one else ever did it when they had a sort of middling career and then became a huge star off their own uh, vision, off their own hard work vision of, of what they could be. And so this is what happens with him. He's, he's a kind of um, middling level star in the, in the mid-1930s. Uh, he leaves Paramount and chooses his own projects. Uh, and there were people who saw the potential in him uh, who wanted to work with him. He was very lucky in that respect. Uh, but he's so successful right from the beginning of his freelance career that he very quickly is able to have his pick of what he does and who he works with. Um, and so um, he makes he makes films with Leo McCary. He makes films with Howard Hawks, George Stevens, um, and, of course, Hitchcock. Right. That's what I wanted to talk about because... Obviously, he had a two producers and such and directors. He probably, you know, he seemed to have a a set character, but it tended to be for some of his films, especially, you know, light weight. I guess is the best way to put it. But over time, he we we see him grow as as an actor into being well rounded and also someone who can carry a film that is much more serious than than some of the earlier films he did. Um, yes. What led to him working with Hitchcock? Because obviously he worked with Hitchcock a number of films, and a lot of them completely different from each other. They weren't all the same kind, you know, your typical Hitchcock film. Or what we see is, what we think these days is the typical Hitchcock film. That's a better way of putting it. Yes. Um, they they met in, in Hollywood, um, in 1940, uh, and um, I think they, I think they had a strong bond right from the beginning, because they had both come from working class British backgrounds, and here they were in Hollywood in 1940, 
and having completely reinvented themselves. And I think they could, they could look at each other and say, I know who you are. I, I know exactly who you are. Uh, I know who you're pretending to be and I know who you are. Uh, because they had come from this very similar background, and they shared they shared a, a, a love of music hall and music hall humor. Um, uh, Hitchcock was from London, and uh, Cary Grant had spent uh, several years in London, um, and probably going to the same music halls as Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, in 1940, of course, it was the year of the Battle of Britain and the Blitz, so they probably had a more uh, closer friendship because of that. That um, bond of being from from Britain at this time um, but Hitchcock uh, was interested in in sort of testing the boundaries of audiences um, what is it audiences love of Cary Grant and and their their sort of the degree to which they trusted this character uh, and so it doesn't surprise me that that's that's where Hitchcock was coming from, because he made a lot of films like that. You know, from from the the Lodger onward, he was making films. The Lodger, the Thirty Nine Steps, he was making films that had very handsome protagonists who might just be murderers. Uh, so that that was a sort of standing interest of Hitchcock's, and uh, you could see that he would fasten onto Cary Grant and think, "I wonder whether I could get this guy to uh, to do this kind of film with me." What I think is great about Cary Grant is that he was he was in. Uh, he uh, he was very very keen to do this. So Hitchcock proposed a, a couple of other films to him, uh, making us making the screwball comedy Mr. and Mrs. Smith, for example. I think Hitchcock just wanted to work with him, but it wasn't until Hitchcock said, "Would you like to make Suspicion with me?" Uh, this story in which you might be trying to kill your wife, and in fact, it pretty much looks like you are trying to kill your wife. Uh, that Cary Grant said, "Yes, I'm. I'm in. Let's let's do this." Um, and uh, it's a fascinating film because it's Cary Grant is as charming and and handsome and uh, lively and fun as he's ever been on screen. But slowly but surely, the story gets darker and darker, and it seems as though, oh, this handsome, charming guy is actually maybe probably a murderer. And uh, it just goes it goes in a direction you really don't expect it to. Uh, and uh, it's quite ambiguous in, in the end, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, he and Hitchcock then explored sort of similar ground, I think, in their subsequent films. There was always a, there was always the question mark hanging over Cary Grant. Who is this guy really in, in Hitchcock's films? And one of the things that you mentioned, we were talking about him being able to choose his own uh, roles as he wanted to a large extent, but he also he also was involved with scripts as well. I mean, not necessarily with every director, but he cared a lot about the the, the scripts that he chose, the projects that he chose to do. That's right. He um, insisted when he signed contracts, he insisted that he had approval over his director, approval over his uh, co-stars. Uh, and approval over the script. Um, he also insisted on approval over the publicity, uh, but uh, the it, it meant the, the other the other approvals meant that when they were on the set, he could pretty much say what he wanted to do, uh, and how things were going to go, because he he had more more authority than than anyone else, um, and so he would he would take the script uh, and go through it line by line crossing out bits of dialogue and, and changing them. He, did, he didn't rewrite whole stories, uh, but he was very, very attentive to dialogue and the sort of cadence and pace of dialogue and very keen to, to make sure that that was right. So his, his copies of the script, which are in, in his papers, uh, are very heavily annotated and marked, marked through. Um, and uh, he insisted on a measure of improvisation on set so even having done all of that to the script when they went to make the film uh, they would um, sit down and go through the scene and then think about how do we how do we perk this up a bit how do we make this a little bit more compelling he always insisted that uh, they had to um, inject a bit of life into it and not just follow the script um, so he was, was a very creative figure on the set 
um, and and worked with people, by the way, who encouraged this and liked this. It was, he wasn't fighting against uh, directors who insisted it be done their way. He liked working with people like Howard Hawks and, and uh, uh, Hitchcock to some extent who were open to his ideas. I know Hitchcock is famously... His he cared more about pre-production than the actual production, <laughs> famously. But uh, you know, I could see how he and Cary uh, Grant might have gotten along that way. Yes, um, I think you know. I think Hitchcock liked to plan the shots out so carefully. You know, famously he planned out his his storyboards, and he wanted he wanted everything on set to go to everything to be settled before filming began. So Cary Grant's improvisation his insistence on changing things had to be done before the cameras rolled right and then then everything was was planned out uh, but um they they enjoyed working together because uh i think hitchcock allowed Cary grant the leeway to do that but also Cary grant appreciated having a director who um kept a very calm set he was a very Cary Grant was a very anxious man uh, on the set, very anxious about his performance and, and getting it right. And he couldn't stand working in an environment where people lost their tempers or uh, where there was tension. Uh, and you know, Hitchcock was famously so so calm on set he would occasionally snooze, he would occasionally take a nap. Uh, and I think I think that worked for Cary Grant. Let's have some peace and quiet. So why, you know, obviously. His career as he was getting older, you know, obviously that was good. That would make a difference to your career anyway, from the kind of roles you might get. But he decided in 1966 to retire. As uh, far as you can tell, he was healthy. But what made him finally decide, well, at 62, I think it's time to retire? Well, I think, you know, he'd made, he'd made 72 films. Uh, and and uh, and made a fortune. I don't think he needed any more money. Uh, and I I think he was he was just to some extent tired of it. Uh, and that's that's certainly the way he talked about it. He he people would say when are you gonna when are you gonna come back to filmmaking? And he would say never. Uh, you know it's not as glamorous as it looks. It's a lot of sitting around on set waiting for lighting setups to be done, drinking bad coffee. Uh, so, you know, there was a, there was a kind of tedium to it that he thought I've, I've been there and, and done that. I think he was also very self-conscious about aging on screen. He'd been talked about as the most handsome man on screen for many years. And then he'd been talked about for so long, he was talked about as a, an actor who never seems to age. And that, um, seems to have made him much more conscious of the extent to which he was aging. Uh, and he, when he talked about retiring, he kept talking about, I don't want to grow old on screen. I don't want people to, uh, I don't want to upset audiences by, by growing old on screen. Um, so those are, those are reasons, but I think above all, the most important reason for retiring, uh, was that he had his first child, um, at the age of 62, he had his first child, Jennifer Grant. Um, and he'd waited so long to have a child, uh, and, um, was so keen to have a child that he he decided there's no way I'm going to spend you know half my time working and, and maybe even traveling to go on location uh, when I could be spending time with my with my daughter. So one of the interesting things I found in re in both your book and also in reviewing some of the other we talked about the documentary already is that. Cary Grant is still considered incredibly important to the history of film by many people, and we, we talked about the the uh, before we started recording the Cary Grant Festival. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, the Cary Grant Festival is is um, held in Bristol every two years, uh, and it's a, uh, a chance for um, fans and cinephiles and academics to get together. Uh, and discuss his career and his films and to see films on the big screen. Uh, and um, there are all sorts of um, immersive experiences as well um, about to do with making his favorite cocktail and learning to talk like Cary Grant. It's, it's huge fun as well as a very, uh, as well as a very serious experience. Um, and I, it, 
it is a kind of showcase for his talent and his career um, where people from all over the world come really to to admire what he what he achieved and of course we talked this year this is the year it's it's an even numbered years and this is a year that it's actually scheduled but as you pointed out it's going to be unfortunately have to be done online this year well, I'm not sure it is unfortunate. I mean, it's certainly oh, unfortunate. It's certainly unfortunate oh, okay. that we're having a pandemic. Uh, but um, I think more people will be able to join in than True. ever before. So, you know, having it held in, in Bristol means that uh, uh, you have to want to come to it pretty hard and have a lot of money to get there. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, it's in a way, it's a good thing that this year we will will be online and, and far more people will be able to take part in it. So I think one of the things that I discovered in both in your book and, and, and as we've talked is that for somebody who was so famous and so well, you know, made so many films, he, he's underrated. I think uh, obviously nowadays, but I mean, even during the period, he's underrated because he had a certain, you know, people looked at him a certain way or people who weren't in the know or maybe didn't watch films as, as often but in the end, it turns out he was easily one of the most influent or one of the best actors to come out of that period. This period, I agree. I agree, and um, I think there's there's an assumption uh, from from the beginning of his uh, career that he was playing himself, mm-hmm. uh, and that that was that was an easy thing to do on screen, but also that he, he did it consistently throughout his career. Uh, now he, he got quite frustrated with this and he, and he would, um, it, when asked about it, he would, he would ask the, uh, interviewer to imagine how hard it would be to play yourself on screen and then mm-hmm. talk about the technique involved simply in, in screen acting. Um, but I think the other the other important point is that he didn't just play himself on screen. He played any number of different roles uh, in a wide variety of, of genres, uh, and um, they they weren't all great. Um, you know, he wasn't good in historical films, for example, uh, and uh, he was he made he made a few films. So he made a couple of musicals that he that he sang in. Uh, those weren't very good either. Um, but he could play both comedy. Uh, well, he could play comedy, he could play melodrama, and he could play in thrillers very, very effectively uh, and in very different roles. And I think that's what's appreciated now. I think um, through people having access to so many of his films now, you can see um, a double feature of, of Penny Serenade and uh, North by Northwest, for example, mm. um, and get a sense of just just how wide his range was. I know one of the good things about being able to interview authors of these kind of actors and actresses is you you learn that more. You start to understand that more. And people like uh, Cary Grant and obvious one, another one would have been J- Jimmy Stewart, who had a career that in some ways mirrored in that he was doing lightweight things. But then, and as it turns out, they both worked with Hitchcock. So maybe that's part of the uh, the, <laughs> the way you combine them. Yes, and um, there's also uh, there's a wonderful phrase. I think it's Andrew Britton's phrase, but I might be might be wrong about audiences having selective amnesia about stars. So you always remember the you know the sort of uh, happy man of the people, Jimmy Stewart, mm-hmm. uh, and you're always surprised. <laughs> you're always surprised when it turns out to be the Jimmy Stewart of It's a Wonderful Life, who's having a breakdown, a vertigo, who's you right. know torn apart by desire. Uh, that we prefer to remember. We have this selective amnesia where we want to remember uh, the, the the sort of more easygoing aspects of the star, I suppose, so that we can go through that uh, experience of, of finding out that there's more to them uh, each and every time we see their films. Well, hopefully your book will do a good job of reintroducing Jimmy Stewart, or excuse me, Cary Grant to people <laughs> Jimmy Stewart on the brain, uh, Cary Grant to people who either haven't thought of him much lately, which I suspect is possible. Uh, a nice thing is, as you've pointed out, a lot of the films that he 
made are available in various formats. Depending on where you live in the world, you have access, hopefully, to some of these pretty easily. And maybe not take the time to try to find all 72 of them as you did, but <laughs> still the idea that uh, he is someone who deserves con continual re-examination. And I'm, I'm glad that your book uh, did such a great job of, of, of pushing that. And I really have to tell you, I really enjoyed speaking with you about uh, Cary Grant. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. I've, I've enjoyed, I've enjoyed it myself. Thanks a lot. Thank you. My great thanks to Mark Glancy. I hope that his book will be a great companion to the continuing reappraisal of a great Hollywood actor. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network.